it's critical that we allow workers that cognitive space, the uninterrupted attention to focus on work that they, you know, it could actually be clearing their inbox, or it could be going into a very deep and challenging issue that they just need the space to focus on. Not only is that actually going to be better for work, it's going to be better for their well-being, um, but it actually delivers better outcomes for the organization. So we need to stop doing everything everywhere. And, you know, it actually requires hard work from leaders in order to do that. And I think that's part of why we're not actually seeing it many places. Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald, and you're host on The Card Podcast. I'm curious about what's changing in the world of work. The conversations we have with our guests always bring in personal stories and unique perspectives for us all to learn from. Hope you enjoy the show. You're very welcome back to the CORD podcast. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Sean Gallagher, one of Australia's leading experts on the future of work. And our topic today is the future of human potential. So we have a great time difference. It's evening for Sean and it's early morning for me here in Ireland. Just a brief background on Sean, he's the inaugural director of the Centre for the New Workforce at Swinburne University of Technology, a research centre focused on workplace and workforce transformation. Sean works with leaders from some of Australia's largest companies and government departments to empower their people to thrive and change and drive value creation for their organisations. His research has shaped federal and government policy including the Victorian government inquiry into the on-demand economy and new federal legislation enshrining flexible workers' rights. He's also the chief investigator for the Australian Cobotic Centre, looking at the future of the human-robot workforce. And Sean holds a PhD in chemistry. So you're very welcome to the podcast, Sean. And uh, I always ask a personal question at the start of the podcast, which is really about your influences younger formative years and and how did they shape who you are today? Thanks very much. It's great to be with you and your listeners today, wherever they may be. It's a great opportunity. I had an unusual uh, formative years, I might say. You might hear a bit of a twang in my voice, but that's because I grew up in two countries. I was born in Australia, but uh, spent most of my formative years in Canada. And I went to 11 schools in eight cities. For a long time, I thought I went to 10 schools until my mother corrected me one day, said, actually, no, it was 11. But I also did a lot of swimming. I swam competitively at an international level for many, many years. And I suppose that experience was very formative for me in a number of ways, from being in so many different locations and seeing the world through different eyes. And that really gave me confidence to recognize that there are very many different perspectives on the same thing or on different things. And I think that what I've taken from that is an ability to, you know, to connect disparate ideas and to recognize that, you know, there are synergies between things that aren't necessarily immediately obvious. And, you know, seeing the world through many different lenses was certainly very formative for me. And from a swimming perspective, it was hard yakka, as we would say here in Australia, you know, 
I was in the pool 24 hours a week. I used to leave home, you know, in Canada at like 4.30 in the morning and not get home until 7.30 at night, taking four meals with me and changes of clothes, four hours in the pool and so forth. And I suppose that gave me a very good work ethic. But more than that, I think it was recognizing, constantly pushing boundaries for myself and, you know, seeing how that was rewarded in terms of competitive success. I think that's one of the things that is perhaps a little bit lost today is that certainly younger people growing up, they have many, many different interests and pursuits, which in many ways is great. And I kind of, you know, it's not that I regret, but it would have been nice to have done a few other things other than swim, for instance. But at the same time, you know, really having a deep and long-standing commitment to one thing really demonstrated to me, you know, sort of the levels to which I could push myself. I had probably many other formative experiences, but I think those two in particular, very relevant uh, for the conversation we're having today. You've definitely broken a record in how, how many schools you attended for podcast guests, Sean. And you're right on cue in relation to disruption, because obviously that would have brought a huge amount of disruption into your life and being able to manage all of that. And uh, I wanted to speak to you about disruption and looking at the different lens of the workforce and the workplace, and both have massively been disrupted in the last couple of years. So what are the broad changes that you're seeing that has been brought around by this disruption? You know, there's probably the most critical thing that has happened and most fundamentally, particularly from the pandemic, there's been what I see a mindset shift. Yes, there's been a disruption in terms of remote working and so forth, but I think there's been more fundamentally than that. We have changed our ideas and shattered many shibboleths, particularly that around the office. If you ask me in sort of February 2020, if you said, Sean, what's the purpose of the office? Uh, most people would have said, well, that's where we go to do work, isn't it? But now we've realized that a lot of the work that we used to do in the office actually is better done elsewhere. You know, so starting to change our mindsets and open up our ideas and, you know, certainly with flexible working for workers, you know, having more agency over when and where they work has been a significant disruption in that. But most fundamentally, you know, what we look at is when people talk about the future of work, it's often not work itself. It's often how work gets packaged, right? It's like a, the four-day work week, which is the current approach. Even flexible working is around how work gets packaged. What we look at is the structure of work itself. So the activities that people do in work in order to drive value creation. I mean, after all, that's why organizations exist. It, they exist to create value for their customers, their clients, their people, and, and hopefully for society more broadly. And work is how they create value. So I'm really interested, and the work that we do at the center is how have all these disruptions really impacted the structure of work? It's not the tasks necessarily, but it's often the activities. And certainly with the rise of flexible working and hybrid working, we're seeing a real disruption to the structure of work. 
and what that means in terms of how organizations uh, create value. So that's very much what we fundamentally look at. And that coming back to the change in mindset shift, we're starting to, you know, research that we've done as well as many others shows that we need to change our mindsets over not just the type of work that humans do, but actually where they do it. So when you talk about the structure of work, I'm looking at this from the lens of the organization and value creation and also thinking about the individual and the value that they're bringing to an organization. So how is that broken down or is there a best new way around how we structure work or are we still in experimental mode with that? You know, we actually put out a report in 2021, which was the first work in Australia to look at how to make hybrid work work for organizations. And pleased to say that in 2023, McKinsey came out with a report pretty much uh, reflecting what we had said back then. And we found that there is a comparative advantage to location. And what I mean by that is that as I said in the intro, that certain types of work that we used to do in the office should actually be carved out and done remotely. It's actually better for productivity in many respects, but that work has to be routine, repetitive, simple in many ways, uh, business as usual that you would expect individuals to do and teams often asynchronous. The office or the workplace really is around where you bring people together to do work that you should take advantage of having a bunch of humans in the room. And so it's not just teamwork, it's actually much more meaningful interactions between people. So particularly where you're working in an ill-defined problem space, where you're trying to solve a complex problem or respond to a crisis or you know strategic planning, all of that type of work where people come at these challenges, everyone has their own mental model, and there needs to be a convergence on that. We need to reach consensus. And that is by far better done in person, you know, where trust and psychological safety, where we're able to read body language cues from the people we're working with. And actually, it's a much more effective way to work. So coming back to the structure of work, what we have done is taken a different view on work. And we've looked at all of the activities that organizations do within the normal work cycle that they face, you know, but we've recategorized them looking through what's the level of human interaction required in order for that activity to be successful. And most importantly, you know, what we call meaningful connections, you know, the social gatherings and onboarding and, you know, building up trusting and human connections between people. You know, we all have examples of colleagues who came and started work at our organizations during COVID and then left. And we actually never met them in person. You know, fundamentally, before, if, if you'd asked me, is um, social gatherings and are they uh, really an important work activity? Actually, they're now pretty much the most important work activity to build a sense of belonging and identity and connection to the organization as well as to other individuals. And of course, other work activities that are important to be done in person, in the office or workplace, wherever it might be, 
where we're working in those ill-defined problem spaces, as, as I was talking about. And then as we get into more business as usual, where work streams are set and, and where you know, we're working with people on things that we've done before, a lot of that is much better done remotely. So if you think about from an activity perspective, the tasks really haven't changed. You, know, you still need to produce a report or to build a new product or whatever it might be. But the activities, the structure of the work that is required to deliver those tasks or those outcomes is changing. And that is really what we see as the main disruption to work. And the way to look at it is through a human interaction lens. So it's doing those activities in two different locations when you're talking about hybrid. And what I'm seeing is that leaders and individuals seem to be working off different playbooks in the world that I work in and go into organizations because I see that leaders are still maybe in some cases playing off the old model and wanting people to play by the old rules. And I just wonder, have you seen a really great model of collaboration that this coming together and that everybody understands the new structure and rules of work, if you know what I mean. There's a few things in that statement. Let me try to unpack them a little bit. First thing I would probably say is that we're still very much in the early stages of hybrid. It's going to be a long time before we get to hybrid normal, and that will require a lot of testing and learning and so forth. The second thing I'd probably say is relating to you know, initially I work in 2021, recognizing the structure of work needs to change. You know, leaders get that, right? Everyone that I talk to, the light bulb moments, et cetera. But what we're finding out is that people are still doing everything everywhere, right? They're still brainstorming online and they still come into the office to sit at a computer to do email. And as a result, what we're finding is that you know, coming back to the office or coming to a workplace really isn't working in the way that it probably should. And so to complement that structuring, you know, in the work that we've done with many organizations is that we now need to begin to program the activities that occur when you're working remotely and when you come to the office. And certainly we work with organizations to help them better understand that programming and to make sure it gets set up to succeed. But from a collaboration perspective, you know, it is about constant testing and learning. And I think when it comes to collaboration, it's important to recognize that collaboration has become a bit of a catch-all for many different types of forms of interaction between people. You know, coordinating activities or planning actions, that's not really collaboration. But we have a whole heap of, you know, digital and virtual collaboration tools that tell us that we're collaborating and, you know, at a very basic level, it might be collaboration, but that's not meaningful collaboration. So organizations, they need to begin to program more meaningful collaboration activities when you get people to come into a place of work. But as I said, to test and learn around that. One of the things I say is, you know, when you have your team anchor day on a Tuesday morning, the first thing you should do is start with a brainstorming session and to commit to that and to give that a go for you know three or four months 
and to see what value you get out of that and to learn from that and to keep what is great and to ditch what doesn't or to refine. So testing and learning is critical. Coming back to the point of your question around collaboration, I think we think we're collaborating most of the time when we're actually not. You know, solving those complex problems, uh, responding to a crisis, et cetera, and where we're trying to advance very difficult ideas and concepts, you know, converge on the meaning of complex information as a group, you know, that's where real meaningful collaboration occurs. When I listen to you, Sean, I'm almost thinking about the growth in human potential that's now required. You talk about meaningful connections, meaningful collaboration, and it's almost like we're upgrading ourselves as humans for the future of work, or that is what's going to be required. And when you talked about collaboration there, I was thinking about that HBR article about collaboration overload that came out a few years ago and the risk of burnout. And that's definitely something that we're seeing as well is that it's almost like we're focusing on so many different things in so many different places that this focus is maybe lost in all of that. So I know you have strong views on burnout and you've talked about that as well. So maybe bring that collaboration and burnout together maybe. Well, I think there's a couple of things you know, we could spend a week talking about burnout in as many dimensions. But I think the first is that you're right, there is collaboration overload because we're actually not necessarily collaborating. And there's constant disruption from asynchronous work. You know, collaboration, almost by its definition, should be a synchronous activity and getting constant notifications from you know, your team members updating a particular document or there's a you know, new notification in a thread or whatever it might be, that is distracting us and taking us away from more focused work that we actually need to do. So I do think organizations need to recognize that to help workers focus on much more meaningful collaboration, but in the same time, to focus on what type of work you do synchronously versus asynchronously. And there should be rules around both of them. You know, for example, with, you know, asynchronous work, particularly if you're working remotely, I mean, there should be no meetings at all, right? There should be meeting-free periods, allow workers to have the cognitive space to focus on, you know, complex challenges or to really throw themselves into understanding a particular issue at depth in a way that is best with distraction. I think that's, we're trying to do everything everywhere all at once and it's not working. And so by starting to put some guardrails around how we work, by st structuring work in the way that I mentioned, but also allowing workers their time to work as individuals on the work that they need to do, but then also to identify other times in which they are actually doing meaningful collaboration. Burnout actually is diminished where workers feel that they're doing something that's of value and as meaningful and is actually built in a reinforcing the value that they add to the organization 
their work feels like it's actually delivering an outcome. So there's certainly the mechanical challenge of burnout that we need to address, uh, but there's also people feel less burnt out if they feel valued, if they feel that their work is actually delivering something meaningful. Uh, so helping create some certainty in an uncertain world, I think, is a place to start. I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge, the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonix.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, and you mentioned there, you know, meaningful is a common thing that's coming up now, and it's from meaningful connection, meaningful collaboration, meaningful work, and people making a difference and being trusted. And I'm just wondering about the way we were educated to work in the past was to be busy, to be showing that we were working. This might have come from our schooling and our education. And are we creating this space or have you seen that where people are being allowed that space and are leaders allowing them the space? Or are we still going back to back meetings and feeling guilty if we are taking that white space because we don't see that as work because it's thinking space, which is really valuable if we're upgrading ourselves as humans? Uh, there's certainly been an increase in anchor days and co-anchor days and starting to structure work around those. And I think that that's helpful. But on average, I think 25% more meetings in people's diaries now than there were before the pandemic. And that's even much higher level for leaders. In some ways, it's a bit of a hangover from the pandemic, right? We started to have a lot more meetings because we wanted to make sure everyone felt connected and they weren't isolated. And we were checking in on them and so forth in a positive manner, not to monitor them so much. But that and the fact that virtual technologies, there's no transaction cost to setting up a meeting, right? Here we are talking on other sides of the planet. And, you know, there's so a lot of that hangover uh, still exists. And so our diaries are, are filled up with meetings. Many meetings should just be an email. If you're just conveying information, most of that could be done better in electronic means than doing that. But So there are those anchor days. But you know what I talk about is not just an anchor day in the office, have an anchor day that's remote. And when you're working remote in particular, make sure that that perhaps aligns with your meeting-free day or meeting-free periods. It's critical that we allow workers that cognitive space, the uninterrupted attention to focus on work that they, you know, it could actually be clearing their, their inbox, or it could be going into a very deep and challenging issue that they just need the space to focus on. Not only is that actually going to be better for work, it's going to be better for their well-being, um, but it actually delivers better outcomes for the organization. So we need to stop doing everything everywhere. And you know it actually requires hard work from leaders in order to do that. And I think that's part of why we're not actually seeing it many places. That's a really wise point. We need to stop 
doing everything everywhere. And I want to change now to AI. And you're involved, obviously, in robotics yourself. And, you know, in the news at the moment, we're seeing the Hollywood scriptwriters and actors going on strike in the US and they would be your typical gig worker. And it's thought creative skills were saved from AI. And I saw that Oscar winner Susan Sarandon argued this weekend, the issues of streaming and AI are things that have to be dealt with. And now we're in an old contract for a new type of business. And it's not just working for most people, she said. So we're seeing this exponential growth in AI and obviously we're experiencing it through ChatGBT at work. What impact is that having on us as humans and where do you see that evolving from your research? There was a research in the future of work, you know, five or six years ago. There was a came across an, an anecdote and the headline was that humans have been taking technology's job, not the other way around. And the reason the thinking behind this was that, you know, after the industrial revolution, when we set up organizations which are rules-based and hierarchical and work is neatly packaged up in, and which can ultimately be codified, you know, that's the kind of work that uh, technology and robots should be doing, but they weren't very sophisticated at the time. So we stuck humans there. And it really does. I like that anecdote because it challenges us to think more about what is human work? And there's no greater question at the moment than that being asked through generative AI and the impacts on work. What is the future of human work? And as you pointed out, even some creative work that we thought was the domain of being human is now being challenged. And this is a question that I ponder very, very deeply. And, you know, it's, it's a work in progress and I think will continually be. But I asked myself, what's innately human? What really is a distinguishing feature of us that was always going to be different to tech disruptions come along? And there are three or four areas that I've been sort of thinking about. The first is that we can navigate uncertainty. We can figure out the future. You know, AI, no matter how sophisticated it is, is trained on, you know, existing data. And yes, it can forecast the future, but it's really the humans that make the decision about the future that's best for them. So we're very good at navigating uncertainty and figuring out the future. The second is, while a lot of creative work can now be done by AI, what I call, I think, crazy creativity is still very much human exploit. You know, just in the way I said in the intro about being able to connect disparate ideas and bring them together in a novel way. I think that is still very much uh, a human capability. And of course, humans have a much better, and I think will always be better, at deeply understanding other humans. When we talk to a friend or someone that we know or someone that we've just met, we're taking in a whole of who they are and empathy and a connection that can't necessarily be articulated in, in an AI. And of course, the, perhaps the fourth area is that humans are very good context, meaning, and judgment. And when you think about all of those 
four areas when I, you know, coming back to the future of human work. And that is actually the kernel of how organizations create value. It's finding out in novel ideas and opportunities in disruptive environments because they also understand how that will help or support their customers or their clients, and they're able to make the judgments and meaning of it. So in some ways, a lot of work that we've been doing over you know decades, which is, you know, and a lot of it now is, you know, a very high paid, high salaried, uh, white collar work, but it's still in many ways, uh, routine and, and able to be uh, done easily, or not easily yet, but certainly soon, increasingly by AI. So the future of human work is really going to be at that high level, you know, the, the initial value creation activities that are actually essential for organizations. So in some ways, I'm not quite sure what Susan Sarandon was saying, but what I think, and you probably heard many people say it, you know, AI won't take your job. Someone using AI will. And so how do you start to begin using generative AI to elevate yourself, not just within your job to do better work, but to actually augment yourself to think about, you know, the, that much higher level of uh, creative work that you can do. And that brings me to education. And how are we educating our current workforce and the future people who are coming through our education system for the type of work that you describe? Because it sounds like you're describing people who need to navigate uncertainty, who need to be crazily creative, who need to better understand humans and do that within the context of meaning and judgment. So it's maybe very different to how our kids are being educated today and how a lot of people have succeeded in the workforce in the past. I think, you know, universities, even high schools, but certainly education in general, it should be a safe space for taking intellectual risks, you know, supporting students for their future and to help them understand just like I did in sport, right? How can you push your boundaries in a safe and supported way to understand uh, your abilities and capabilities in you know, a fast-changing and rapidly uh, dynamic world? I'm going out on a limb here. Um, and I mean, really, if the future of work looks like that, well, what does the future of the organization actually look like? I'm sure your listeners know of the venture capital funds. And VC funds, you know, out of every hundred startups they invest in, you know, two thirds won't return the money that was invested. Maybe another 20% will be break even. And, uh, you know, one or two will return 20, 30, 50, 100 times their investment. So is that potentially, you know, a formula or a blueprint for the future of an organization? Having lots of little cracks teams developing new business ideas within the broader context of what that organization's about and investing in each of them. And the success of the organization is to make sure that two or three out of that hundred really kick goals big time. So coming back to education, how are we preparing? You know, will that be a future? I don't know, but certainly 
our ability to create value, to be innovative and to set up innovative business models or new products and ideas that actually go on to really be successful in whatever way. So how are we actually setting up our students, our graduates for that kind of future? I mean, that's really going to be, to me, that's where I think the opportunity for education needs to be is um, creating entrepreneurs in everyone, because that's the kind of world that is rapidly coming upon us. And, you know, certainly with generative AI, we have enormous capability and potential to do so much more than what we used to be able to do. Some of your listeners probably know of Ethan Mollick at, at Wharton at University of Pennsylvania. You know, Previously, he would have given his students an assignment to write a business plan and they might have done a, a deck of a pitch deck of some sort. Now he sort of says, not only do that, but set up a website, make sure it's properly functioning, you know, do social media, have 40 interviews you know, with virtual interviewees, as well as doing real ones, and so on and so forth. The magnitude and the quality of work that we can now ask our students to do using, in particular, generative AI is you know, vast. That is the kind of approach that I think that we need to be taking. You go back to my original field in chemistry, you know, protein folding, for example. You know, I did a little bit of work in that space. And, you know, over decades of little tiny incremental experiments that often took years and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars just to understand one little bit more about how a protein folds and unfolds. And now we can uh, are doing it in a matter of days. So how are we preparing our science graduates to really be more innovative and entrepreneurial in science and recognizing that to push the boundaries of what's possible. You know, I think it's not just about, you know, setting up students to, to create businesses. I think it's relevant right across all disciplines. You're singing the same song as myself here in relation to having that entrepreneurial mindset. Just before we leave, Sean, I, you're the chief investigator of the Australian Cobotic Centre. And I just wanted to find out a little bit more about what kind of work you're doing in that space. Well, first of all, Cobotics is um, a contraction. It's for collaborative robotics. And that is where, you know, if you, we've all seen, you know, a footage of robots, say, on in a car manufacturing plant, there aren't any humans anywhere near that, right? That you always see robots and humans separate. But increasingly, because of the nature of work, to assist workers, uh, you know, humans are going to be on production lines and in manufacturing for, for many years to, to come. But we can augment humans by having robots collaborate with them, be it, you know, holding a very heavy object while the worker is uh, working on that and the robots and the human are collaborating. That's just one small example. But so what I look at is the, the future of what are the, the skills and capabilities that humans need in order to work with cobots, uh, but also at the organizational level. How does an HR system start to think of integrating cobots into their organization? What does that mean in terms of not only workforce development, but ultimately 
the what that means also in terms of uh, driving innovation and recognizing you can do more with with this type of technology. And what type of skills are you seeing that are required to to work with cobots? Well, it's still early days yet, but certainly, you know, one of the things is digital capability, right? And so we're working with a couple of manufacturers in Australia. They're the traditional manufacturers that, you know, in order for them to work with cobots, they need to be able to use digital technologies to interact with these cobots. And that's really a fundamental capability that is required. But beyond that, you know, coming back to my interest and focus is that is actually allowing workers to be more creative, to recognize they can start to see problems in a different way or start to see new and more valuable problems because of working with this technology. It really is, our hope is that uh, they can be much more creative in the work that they do. And lastly, with all of this change coming through technology and you know, what we're seeing as ethical implications. What type of a society are we creating for the future? And if we were to peer into our window in five years' time, what would be your hope and thoughts for what we might have created as a result of all of this change? Well, I, I don't think this change is going to stop, unfortunately. I th- well, or fortunately, it's here to stay. Um, I have to say, you know, I have a, um, my husband and I, we have a nine-year-old daughter and uh, we were on a trip recently. She, she didn't come with us. Um, she was with grandma. We went to New Zealand uh, for a friend's wedding and we had a day off and we were just driving around and we pulled over at a vineyard on the South Island and I said to Owen, I said, um, so we need to talk about how do we prepare our daughter for the future? Right. And, you know, a very serious question in particularly given what's going on. And so we had a discussion around, you know, making sure that just in the way that I've been talking about, you know, encouraging her EQ, encouraging her empathy, her, you know, ability to understand and to connect and value other people, but also being a risk taker and, you know, that, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to, you know, learn from something not going well. I think, you know, it's not necessarily the society question you asked, but it really is the future of society, you know, from my perspective. And, you know, making sure that we don't just perhaps pivot uh, slightly. I think that we have a hyper-focus in our societies on skills. You would think that skills are the only thing that matters. You know, here in Australia, um, both at state and federal level, we've got departments that focus purely on skills. Of course, skills are super critical. But if we, if a, you know, if a graduate or a high school student thinks that I just need these technical and professional skills in order to do my work, they're going to find themselves competing with technology before long. And so skills are important to be able to do something, but to elevate themselves and to stay ahead of uh, that tech curve, it comes back to what I'm hoping that we're preparing our daughter for is, um, you know, being those, you know, innately human qualities that are going to distinguish and, you know, ensure that um, she has a great future in a society that values those things. Well, thanks a million, Sean. I think you're having a real adult conversation 
about your daughter there. And it's great that you're critically thinking about what she's going to need for the future. And maybe more parents should be having those conversations, not just, you know, what points they get in college. It's about the mindset and the human that we're creating. And I'm a great believer in that. And and what I'm taking from it is the value that you're creating for others in the work that you're doing. But some of the key takeaways for me were meaningful connections, meaningful collaboration, and really, I suppose, seeing the, the future of work through the human lens and always thinking that we have that ability to navigate complexity and uncertainty. And uh, that's what will keep us evolving and growing as human beings. So thanks so much, Sean, for your time today. And uh, it's great to be able to share your wisdom with our audience here in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Thanks, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks very much. And uh, focus on what is human. That's our North Star. Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.